God's Word and turn with me to the book of 1 Peter. As always, the centerpiece of our worship and our life together as a church is the preaching of God's holy word. And my prayer is that the word of God would not just be central in our worship services and central in our activity as a church, but it, that it would be central in your lives and in your homes. I pray that you would be so consumed by a love for and a longing for the Word of God, that it is the priority of your life above every other priority, that you literally would order your life around the Word of God. I was thinking about this this morning. What we are doing right here this morning is literally the most important thing we will do. Not just today, but all week long. There is nothing more important. Our spiritual forefathers lost their lives. They sacrificed their comforts. They sacrificed their, their homes. They sacrificed even their families and their lives to do what we are doing this morning. Think about that. That's something very convicting to think about, isn't it? Without the Word of God, we cannot know God. We cannot know our sin. We cannot know the Savior. We cannot know why this world exists and what went wrong with it. And we cannot know how to live with any meaning or purpose. And so truly the words of the proverb are correct that where there is no vision, the people perish. That's not a mission statement for a corporation. That's saying when there is no revelation from God, we wander, we're lost. But when we look into this divine revelation and when we submit our lives to it, then our blind eyes are opened. Our darkened minds are illumined. Our hardened hearts are softened. And we are, as James says, truly blessed. The word of God is nothing less than the message of heaven breathed out by God Almighty himself and preserved for us. It is without error. So what it says is accurate and trustworthy. It is divine. So what it says is authoritative and must be obeyed. It is sufficient. So what it says is what we need to hear in order to live a godly and fruitful life. We dare not neglect it. Indeed, it must be our daily bread, the very source of our lives, as the Holy Spirit works in us through His Word. Today we are beginning a study through the book of 1 Peter. And as we embark on this journey together through this wonderful letter in the New Testament, I pray and I honestly believe that it will be a blessing to your souls. While all Scripture is profitable to train us in godly living, 
1 Peter is one of those books that is intensely practical. It gives specific instruction in specific categories of our lives. In 1 Peter, we find, if you will, a counseling manual, a discipleship handbook. In fact, almost all of the most common pastoral concerns and issues that congregations deal with, that people wrestle with today, can be dealt with, at least initially, by a study of 1 Peter. I won't go through all of the examples of that. But you look at every category of life, and Peter has something to say. This book speaks of the Christian's hope in the midst of a sinful world. It explains our purpose and calling in life. It emphasizes the centrality and value of God's Word to each one of us. It teaches us how to relate to earthly authority and how to live godly in our homes, even when it's not easy. It reminds us of the reality of suffering and it equips us to respond in a godly way. It brings before us the grace of God at work in our lives, and it applies it to every category, in our homes, in our church, and in our lives around the world. And in 1 Peter, we have exemplified for us the importance of looking to God's Word first. First. Before ever looking to other books or resources for guidance. You see, any other resource that we might use for guidance in our lives is only valuable insofar as it points us back to the Word of God. Know the Bible, and you will know how to live. Know the Bible, and you will know how to live. That's what David says in Psalm 1. We began our year by looking at Psalm 1, didn't we? His delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates day and night. And what's the result? He will be like a tree planted by the rivers of water. So I would encourage you, even this afternoon, to take time, to make time, to read through the book of First Peter. You can read through the whole book. It won't take that long. But you will find it to be refreshing. It will encourage your soul. It will convict your heart. It will enlighten your eyes and you will be blessed. Now, my purpose this morning as we begin our study of this book is simply to look at the first two verses. You say, simply enough, it's going to take you an hour. Yeah, it might. Who knows? We're simply going to get an introduction and an overview of the book of 1 Peter. And what we see this morning will set the stage. It will lay the foundation and prepare us for the riches that we will find throughout this book. So let's look at the text. Follow along with me as I read the first two verses of 1 Peter. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, 
according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. These two verses are merely a greeting. They're a salutation, the opening of the letter. They announce who is writing and to whom he is writing. The body of the letter doesn't begin until verse 3. But in these two introductory verses, we find the seeds of what the rest of the book will cover. And Peter doesn't waste any time in diving right into theological discussion. And that's an important observation for us. Make no mistake, Christians. Theology and doctrine and practical living are not mutually exclusive. In fact, they are inseparable from one another. Theology and doctrine are intensely practical. What you know and what you believe will direct how you live, and get this, how you live reveals what you believe. You need to know the Bible. And what I want us to do this morning is to begin by considering who wrote this book and who the original readers were. We'll see that in verse 1. And then we'll consider the message of the book and why I've called this series Steadfast Hope in a Foreign Land. Every word there in that title is intentional. And we'll find out why, and we'll get a snapshot of that in verse 2. Let's begin then by considering the writer of this book. There really is no mystery here. We read in the first part of verse 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. It was customary in that culture to begin your letter with the announcement of who's writing. They didn't wait till the end to sign it like we do today. And throughout the centuries, there really has been no serious debate that Peter is the author of this book. There has been some debate, but nothing that's really ever held water. And there is no other Peter that this could be than the apostle of Jesus Christ, the one that we encounter throughout the Gospels as the leader of the 12 disciples. But while we know that the author is Peter, I think it will do us well to consider who he really is. That is, what kind of person he was and what drove him and prepared him to write the letter that's before us today. When you think of Peter, what comes to your mind? I think I just heard some chuckling. Right? When you think of Peter, uh, you, you probably have some very vivid, vivid thoughts of what kind of guy he really was. And I want us to look at that today. I want us, before we jump into the message that's found in verse 2, I want us to consider several snapshots from the life of Peter that tell us something of who he is and how he got to the point that he wrote this letter. Snapshots first from the Gospels and then from the book of Acts. As we meet Peter in the Gospels, we find him to be incredibly unstable and worldly. And by worldly, I mean earthly-minded. I mean, he was focused on the here and now, and he had a really hard time seeing the big picture, right? 
Those of you that know the life of Peter, you can, you can see what I mean by that. But all along the way, we see Peter learning, making spectacular mistakes, yes, in front of everybody, but learning from them all. And there's a lot that we could look at here. We're going to look at just a few examples. First of all, in Luke chapter 5, and you don't have to turn to all these passages. I'll do my best to summarize them for you. In Luke chapter 5, we find Peter in a boat learning obedience. He and those with him had been fishing all night. They hadn't caught anything. Jesus comes along and gets into the boat to teach a crowd. And when he's finished, he tells Peter to go out back into the sea, the Sea of Galilee, and to let down his nets to catch some fish. And Peter, being the professional fisherman, is a bit skeptical of this and no doubt frustrated. He says in verse 5, Master, we've toiled all night and took nothing. Did he just speak back to the Lord? Yes, he did. And I think he caught himself because he kind of stops and says, But at your word, I will let down the nets. After all, why not? We're already out here anyway. But then we read that when he had done that, the catch of fish that he drew in was so big that the nets began to tear. And then we read in Luke chapter 5, verse 8, what Peter did when this happened. He didn't say, oh, how cool, thank you for the fish. Peter had learned a lesson in that moment. We read that when he saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. That was a confession of his own sinfulness in the light of a clear display of Jesus' deity. And Jesus tells him in verse 10, Do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching men. And then we see Peter and those with him leaving their boats behind and following Jesus. So here's a man who encountered Jesus, who was doubtful at first, but then left everything to follow him. And all the mistakes he made after that need to be remembered in that context. He left everything to obey and follow Christ. But then next in Matthew chapter 14, at another point in his life, we now find Peter in the water, learning faith. This is the famous account of Peter walking on the water with Jesus. And once again, late at night, the disciples are out on the boat, and there is a storm in the middle of the sea. And in the middle of the storm, here comes Jesus walking by the boat. And Peter in a spontaneous display of impulsiveness, decides to go out and walk with him. But then he takes his eyes off Jesus and begins to sink. And ironically, I think the Lord confronts him for his lack of faith. And I'm sitting there thinking, what about the other guys who didn't even get out of the boat? But the Lord is forming Peter. And he's confronting his misunderstanding of what faith is, and he's forming him according to the, fa the fashion of truth. 
And Peter is learning something about what true faith is, not merely just bold impulse. That was typical of Peter's life to that point, right? Bold, impulsive proclamations, but misguided and without understanding. Which leads us then to John chapter 13, where we now find Peter at the table learning humility. In John 13, it's the night before Jesus' crucifixion, and the Lord is at dinner with his disciples. And at one point during that dinner, Jesus gets up and begins to wash the disciples' feet. And Peter resists on the grounds of his supposed humility. Lord, do you wash my feet? You shall never wash my feet. And the Lord responds with a tender and powerful lesson on true humility that is necessary for all who would follow Jesus. Later on that same night, in John 18, we find Peter in the night learning boldness. You see, during dinner, Jesus had announced that someone was going to betray him, and Peter very confidently announced, though all men fail you, though all men walk away, I will never betray you. And Jesus says, you're not only going to betray me, but you're going to do it three times before the sun comes up. And then we find him in the night as the soldiers arrive to arrest Jesus. Peter once again responds with misguided impulsiveness, masking itself as boldness. And in John 18, verse 10, he grabs a sword and cuts off the ear of the high priest's servant. A gutsy move, no doubt, but one that drew the rebuke of Jesus. And yet, in light of that gutsy move, still later in John chapter 18, we find Peter shrinking back and denying him three times. Peter is up, then he's down, and he's up, he's down. He means well, but he doesn't understand what's going on. And in that moment, in John 18, he is coming to grips with his own weakness and his own ignorance. It's a hard lesson, but one that he must learn and one that the Lord is sovereignly ordering. And that leads us to John chapter 21, where we now find Peter at the seashore being restored. The Lord's been crucified and risen at this point. The disciples are now wondering what is next, and Peter specifically is wondering if he has any place in the Lord's work after such a monumental failure at a crucial time. And in this text, we are given a glimpse into a tender conversation between Peter and the Lord, and we find that Peter is forgiven, that he is comforted, and he is recommissioned for the Lord's work, for the Lord's purposes. And that is what is meant when we find that he is an apostle of Jesus Christ, one who has been commissioned and sent out for the Lord's work. And that brings us then to the book of Acts and beyond, where we no longer see Peter as the unstable and worldly one, but as the one who had become a rock. The name Peter means rock. And God gave him that name for a reason. And as we see him in the books, 
in the book of Acts and beyond, we see that he is a whole new man. He understands what Jesus was doing. He has learned the lessons that the Lord was teaching him. And so in Acts 2, we find him preaching the gospel boldly to a massive crowd on the day of Pentecost, proclaiming the death and resurrection of the Jesus that they had crucified and calling them to repent and believe. In Acts chapter 4, we find him contending for the faith, standing before the authorities and not only telling the truth, but directly defying their orders to be silent. In Acts chapter 5, we find him leading the church to confront sin and to take seriously the Lord's call to holiness and to gospel mission. As sin crept into this newly formed church, Peter steps up to the difficult task of confronting it and protecting the saints. Later in Acts chapter 5, we find Peter suffering for Christ, beginning to pay the price for his faith, for his conviction, and for his boldness. Yet this time, he doesn't shrink back. He gets up and he keeps on going. He keeps preaching the gospel and contending for the faith and leading the church, even if it means suffering for Christ. But he was not perfect. He was still learning. He was still growing. So in Acts chapter 15, as a particular controversy arises within the church regarding the Gentiles, we find Peter submitting to the truth. When it came to the relationship between Jews and Gentiles in the church, we find in Galatians chapter 2 that Peter was on the wrong side of the issue and had to be confronted by the Apostle Paul and had to be corrected. But as the account goes on, we find that Peter learns. Peter repented and continued to grow in his own submission to the truth as God had revealed it. And all of that forms Peter, the man who wrote the book before us today. And now as, as we get toward the end of his life, in the writing of the book of 1 Peter, we find Peter shepherding the saints. His influence in the church was significant. And the church is about to face a very difficult time. And Peter knows it. The church knows it. Peter reaches back into a lifetime of ministry and learning and experience. And he applies what he has learned to the life of the church. He is a man who has learned the hard lessons that he is teaching here. He has learned the harsh cost of following and preaching Christ. He knows what suffering looks like. And the church at large is about to learn the same lessons. And Peter is going to help them along. You see, at the time that he wrote this book, it would be just a short time before the Roman Emperor Nero lights the city on fire and blames it on the Christians. And a huge persecution, which was already there, now becomes massive and empire-wide. And then just a few years after that, Peter himself will be executed by crucifixion for his ministry and for his faith. But before he goes... He records the lessons he has learned in a pastoral letter to the saints to shepherd them and to shepherd us to remain steadfast in our eternal hope 
even though the world becomes increasingly hostile to us. We praise God for the influence of the Apostle Peter, and we ought to. But why do I spend so much time on Peter, this one man? Why am I spending so much time on the first word of the book of 1 Peter? Well, for a couple reasons. One, because I want you to see the seriousness and the gravity of what he is writing. I want us to understand that he knows what he's talking about. And that the Lord worked in him to lead him to write this from a lifetime of experience. But I also want us to see that as we look at the span of his life, he was not that different than you or I. Wait a minute, he was the great Apostle Peter. Yes, and look at him. He was a broken and sinful and unstable person. And what made him the rock was nothing in himself, but it was the saving and sanctifying and empowering work of Christ in his life. And it is the same for every one of us. So get out of your heads any notion that something you have done or something you have experienced in the past or some quirk about your personality or some weakness has somehow disqualified you from effective service to the Lord and ministry in the world. There are many of you who sit here who bear some level of guilt and grief over something you have experienced or something you even have done in your past. Don't think for a second that that has put you on the sidelines of service and ministry for the Lord. You are just as valuable as every single Christian is because you have been commissioned not by your goodness, not because of your excellence or your worthiness, but because it is the King of kings and the Lord of lords who has sent you on a mission. And he has not saved you to sit on the sidelines. He has saved you to get in the game and serve. And he has equipped you to do so. And Peter is a model of that. And what he says here is for our good and to help us with that. So, we've looked at who the writer is. Now let's take a few moments to look at who the readers are. Who are the ones who are receiving this letter? In the last part of verse 1, Peter calls them those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. All those names are cities or regions in the northern part of Asia Minor, or what is today Turkey. And within each of these areas would have been some number of little local churches made up of both Jewish and Gentile Christians. And Peter uses two key words to describe them. Elect exiles. And both of those words are significant and incredibly powerful. The word exiles means foreigners, sojourners, aliens. It means y'all ain't from around here. That's what it means. 
And there are three basic aspects to what Peter is getting here, getting at here. First, they're exiles geographically. That is, on the map. Many of those Christians at that point were no longer living in their homelands, and even the ones who were still in their homelands were, were feeling less and less at home there. You know what that feels like, don't you, Christians? Now, when Peter uses the word dispersion, he's not referring to the official dispersion when Christians had to flee Rome and virtually all of the cities in the empire. That hasn't quite happened yet. It's going to happen, but it hasn't quite happened yet. In this context, Peter is simply referring to those Christians who are dotting the landscape of the empire, of the Gentile world. Some Jewish Christians had indeed fled from Jerusalem, and from persecution there, and no doubt Peter has them on his mind as he is writing, because after all, Peter was the apostle to the Jews in cooperation with Paul, who was the apostle to the Gentiles. But these Christians, these Jewish Christians, were living in the Gentile world and among the Gentiles, and the churches were made up of both. So Peter addresses them both. But even further than that, even further than their geographic exile, they are exiles, we could say, physically or socially. In other words, they were feeling in their relationships with the people around them that they have no common ground with the pagan world. And so they don't seem to fit in with the world. And all of that is driven by the main idea that I think Peter has in mind here, that they are exiles ideologically. That's a big word. What I mean by that is they don't share the worldviews and the values of the world around them. And they indeed are not ultimately citizens of this world because they are ultimately, first and foremost, citizens of heaven above. So Peter is acknowledging the believer's strangeness in the world. Y'all ain't from around here. You don't fit in. I know that. He's acknowledging that they are indeed not of the world, but that they have a higher allegiance to the kingdom of God. And by implication, he is reminding all Christians as they navigate life in this world, that this world is not our home that we are not to be getting comfortable here. We might be Americans in our earthly citizenship or of some other country in the eyes of this world, but this is not our ultimate citizenship. And we should not act as if it is. Christians, you need to understand this. And we certainly don't need to act as if our American citizenship is the same as our Christian or heavenly citizenship. Beloved, beware. Because there is an increasing deception in this idea of Christian nationalism that is floating around out there. Don't buy into that. We live as temporary citizens in this world in an earthly land, but this land is not going to last. 
and our permanent citizenship is in a far better country. So let goods and kindred go. You know what kindred is? Let goods and kindred go. This mortal life also, the body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. So Peter not only calls them exiles, but he also calls them elect. It's really unfortunate that this word has become such a point of controversy for Christians, isn't it? Every time it's used in Scripture, it is used as a cause for great comfort for God's people. The word means chosen or set apart. In this case, chosen and set apart as recipients of God's saving grace, as citizens of the kingdom of heaven and his own dear children. It is a reminder to God's people that our salvation and our eternal security do not rest on us. They don't rest on our decision or our performance. Rest assured, if it did, you could lose your salvation. And if you could lose your salvation, make no mistake, you would. But our salvation rests on God's sovereign and saving and securing and sanctifying grace at work in us. And so this idea that we are His elect encourages God's people that though this world might mistreat us, we belong to God, and we are held fast in His all-powerful hands. And no one will pluck His precious ones from His hand. And this idea also exhorts God's people to live as those who have been set apart from the world and unto the Lord. That is, to live holy lives before Him, even as we live in the context of a sinful world. Remembering our calling and election by God Himself from before the foundation of the world, accomplished by Jesus Christ through His life and death in our place, and applied by the Holy Spirit in regenerating us and granting us faith and repentance, is the key to living holy and godly and steadfast and hopeful lives in a world that is exactly the opposite. So, as one commentator encouraged, no believer should ever feel threatened by the doctrine of election because it is always presented in Scripture as the ground of comfort. So here, the designation of elect reminds the scattered Christians in danger of persecution that God's purposes for them are certain and gracious. So Peter jumps right into the deep end of theology, doesn't he? as he begins this practical letter of Christian living. And he reminds the saints of who they are in Christ and in the world. And that brings us now to consider the message that Peter intends to proclaim to these saints. He writes in verse 2, According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood, May grace and peace be multiplied to you. I'm not going to spend too much time on all of this because 
the rest of the book is already is, is going to deal with this in much further detail. And I've already summarized most of it. So this message is a message of pastoral comfort and exhortation that Peter gives to these saints, these elect exiles who are living in the foreign land of this world. And I want to break this verse, verse 2, down into smaller parts and organize it according to two exhortations that we'll find throughout the rest of the book and that will be developed as Peter continues to write. The first exhortation is this. Remember your relationship to the Lord. No matter what you face in life, no matter what circumstances you wrestle with today, what every one of us needs more than anything else is to get our eyes off of ourselves, to look above this world and our circumstances and fix our gaze on the Lord himself. Of course, this morning, if you are not a Christian, Jesus Christ is not your Savior and your Lord, then your relationship to God is one of hostility and judgment. But there is salvation for all who by faith call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. You can look up above this world. You can fix your gaze on Christ. You can call out to Him for salvation. And I urge you to do so. You will save. And Christians, what you need most is to remember not what your difficult circumstances are, nor what you think could be, if only, but to remember who you are before God. And what are you? What are you? That's what Peter shows us in these verses. First of all, you are chosen by God the Father. You are chosen by God the Father. Peter describes in verse 2 what is involved in that word elect from verse 1. And he says you are elect or chosen or set apart according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. That makes me think back to what we saw last time in Psalm 4, verse 3. But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. You are mine, he says. And that word foreknowledge does not mean awareness beforehand, as some like to assume. That word foreknowledge means predetermination, foreordination. It means that before the foundation of the world, you were set apart for God, for salvation by God, and that every moment of your life has been to lead you to that point of being born again by faith and then to lead you all the way to your eternal home. That has been God's work in your life from before the foundation of the world, and that is the testimony of every believer. I once was lost in darkest night, yet thought I knew the way. The sin that promised joy in life had led me to the grave. I had no hope that you would own a rebel to your will. And if you had not loved me first, I would refuse you still. 
Yet as I ran my hellbound race, indifferent to the cost, you looked upon my helpless state and led me to the cross. And I beheld God's love displayed. You suffered in my place. You bore the wrath reserved for me. Now all I know is what? Grace. So not only are we chosen by God the Father, Secondly, we are purified by God the Son. I'm looking at that phrase in verse 2 that says, for sprinkling with his blood. That is by Jesus' blood. It's a reference to the Old Testament. Specifically, Exodus 24, where the blood of the sacrifice was sprinkled on God's people as a testimony of his covenant with them and of their purification in him. And in the same way, if we are in Christ, the blood of Jesus Christ and His covenant have been applied to us and we are cleansed, we are purified from sin, we are brought to peace with God. That cleansing happened once, positionally, at the moment of our conversion. And it continues practically throughout our lives as we are continually formed into the character of Christ until the day we see Him face to face. Therefore, not only are we chosen by God the Father and purified by God the Son, but now we are also sanctified by God the Spirit. Still in verse 2, Peter speaks of the sanctification of the Spirit. That is God's constant work in us to lead us to godliness, to form us into the character of Christ. In every circumstance we face, get this, every circumstance you face is meant to have that forming effect in your life. And again, sanctification begins with a one-time act at conversion when we are declared righteous before God, but then it continues on as a process as we are progressively conformed to our position in Christ. And in all of that, finally, we are held firm by His grace and peace. That is Peter's prayer at the end of verse 2. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. That's not just wishful thinking. That's confident hope. That's a declaration. If our God is mighty to save, then our God is mighty to sanctify and preserve and to finish the work that He has begun in us. All that He has called us to be and to do, He enables us to be and to do by His grace. And that grace is overflowing. It is multiplying. We are chosen by God the Father. We are purified by God the Son. We are sanctified by God the Holy Spirit. And we are held every moment of our lives by His grace and peace. And as we remember all of that in our relationship to the Lord, the next exhortation from Peter's letter is this. Remember your responsibility in the world. Don't switch these questions, these these exhortations around. First, remember your relationship to the Lord. And then on that basis, remember your responsibility in the world. Much of this is only implied throughout the first two verses, but it is developed as we go on through the book. And it is emphasized. What is our responsibility to the world or in the world? First of all, 
be holy. Be holy. You're going to see that throughout the book. If we are elect, then we are set apart from the world unto God and we belong to Him. We are to be different. We are to live as if we are holy and elect and belong to Him. In fact, that must be the driving passion and purpose of our lives. So when I said earlier today that what we're doing this morning is more important than anything else that we do during the week, I mean that. Because your position as God's elect, as His Holy One, overarches everything. This is more important than your job. This is more important than your standing in society. This is more important than your bank account and your security in this world. You can lose it all. God's call still remains. Remember who you are in Him and be holy. Does your life, beloved, demonstrate that you are set apart, body, soul, and mind to God? Be holy. Secondly, be obedient. Be obedient. If we are elect for obedience to Jesus Christ, then He is our Master. He is our Lord. Our allegiance and devotion belong to Him above all. And our life's mission is to do His will. My son and I talked about this recently. When you look in Scripture and you see the word servant, what's the word that's behind that? What's the Greek word? Contemplate this. Slave. It means you don't own yourself. You are not the captain of your own soul. You are not the driver of your own destiny. You are owned. And your life is to do His will. Praise God, we're owned by somebody who is gracious and loving and kind and has only our best at heart, right? But we are still owned. Does your life demonstrate that you love the Lord Jesus Christ and that you live to do His will? Thirdly, be witnesses. This is our responsibility outside the church. If we are elect exiles, then this world is the context in which we are to be holy and obedient. That means that we should look different to the world. And it means that the world should look at us and they should see something that is different. They should see an accurate picture of God. There are many people claiming to be pictures of godliness. But they're not accurate pictures. Does your life portray the beauty of Christ and the gospel to the world around you? Are you known for that? And then finally, be loving. This is our responsibility inside the church. If we are elect exiles, then we are in a common situation. We have a common faith and a common experience, and we need one another. Does your life demonstrate that you love Christ's church and are devoted 
to Christ's church and the saints that fill it up. All of this will be explained and applied throughout this book in marvelous and specific ways. We see it here in seed form. As we seek to navigate the challenges and tribulations of life and recognize that we are unwelcome and unsettled Christians in this world, we need first to remember who we are, that we are chosen by God the Father, purified by God the Son, sanctified by God the Holy Spirit, and held fast by His grace and peace. But do you see that? The entire Godhead is involved in your salvation and your sanctification. They are all sovereignly involved in leading you from this world to your home in the next. Therefore, let us remain steadfast in hope as we live in a foreign land. And we do live in a foreign land, don't we? Let us not be attached to this world. Let's not be distracted by its values, its messages, or its activities. Let us be holy. Let us be obedient. Let us be witnesses to the world. And let us be loving to one another. And let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. Let's pray.